Good morning, church. It's great to be with you again. And uh, I really don't know how I was able to be so blessed to share the Word of God this morning outside. So this has been fun. Um, again, our, our word this morning is going to be coming from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Um, but before we dive in, uh, just a quick show of hands. Where are the husbands at? Show of hands. Okay, what, what? There you go. Now, where, where are the aspiring husbands at? Any, any aspiring husbands? Okay, got one in there. All right, great. So, majority of you, you as well. All right, so I'd like to do a thought exercise with these men here. And to my sisters in Christ, please feel free to hold their feet to the fire on this one. Now, uh, men, I want you to think back to when you first set your eyes upon your wife, or uh, Lord willing, your wife-to-be. Perhaps it was an experience like Aragorn's where you thought you had strayed into a dream. Or maybe it was like Michael Corleone's where you were hit by the thunderbolt. Now, imagine you hear from a friend who's a friend of her friend that this woman of your dreams wants you to know that she really, really likes you. Now, despite how lovesick you are, you're not exactly that wet behind the ears, and so you brush this off as mere hearsay, uh, as there isn't really much to go off of, to, to believe that something tremendous like this could be true. But then it happens that her father comes to you, and he says that his daughter, the woman of your dreams, uh, she's wanting you to know that she is heads over heel in love with you and that she is currently waiting for you to sweep her off her feet and carry her off into happily ever after. And look, she's even written you 66 love letters, all sprayed in her favorite perfume, written in different color pencils and pens. What are you waiting for? Go to her. Now, how would you respond? I mean, we'd all at least agree that these witness accounts de demand some kind of a response. In fact, uh, with all things kind of considered, uh, you'd have to be kind of a buffoon to look at all of this and go, you know, I still have doubts. <laughs> Truly, what more would you really need to believe? Now, up to this point in 1 John, uh, the Apostle has been strongly communicating how the lives of believers will be marked in a considerable way uh, that sets them apart from non-believers. Uh, and in fact, in today's passage of First uh, John chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, we find that John begins to conclude his letter with an urgent uh, word on the matter of belief. In fact, when you gather up every reference that John makes to belief in this letter, uh, there's precisely 55% of this word's reference that we see throughout the entire letter found in these 12 verses alone. He's already established that believers will obey, that believers will love, and he's even touched upon how believers will believe. And to a non-believer, believers believe in some pretty peculiar things. Yet in today's passage, I believe John will be answering the following question for us. What more do you really need in order to believe? For John, I believe he makes it very clear that God has provided everything for us that we need to believe as settled alone in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, to begin unpacking this question concerning what, what is it exactly that we need uh, in order to believe, 
we find that John gives us three important points today. The first is that believing Jesus will always be inseparable to how a believer loves and obeys God. Believing Jesus will always be inseparable to how a believer loves and obeys God. Looking at verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the one who gives new birth loves also the one who has been born of him. Now, John builds off this, his previous statement in chapter 4, noting that if you love God, you will love your brother or sister in Christ. And he goes on to develop this expectation of action into the presumed belief of his audience. I mean, it's clear as daylight, John had no doubt that he was writing to Christians. I mean, we even see at verse 13 of this chapter, again, it was, there was no doubt in his mind that he was writing to believers who loved God. Now, with all the repetition that John gives on the identity of a Christian, you'd almost begin to suspect that John may have felt it's easy for Christians to forget who we are. Now, in the first five verses of this chapter, we see that John is repeating this point that anyone who claims to be a professing believer of Jesus, the promised anointed one, that person's life will be marked by a persevering application of the greatest command to loving God and to loving others. But, John goes ahead to switch it up on us in verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and do His commandments. Now sit on that. I can understand how I would be falling short of loving God by failing to love you. But this whole idea of failing to fail you, or by this whole, uh, to, to fail loving you is in of itself to fail loving God, or to, to uh, love and obey God. This idea of dishonoring my fellow believer with my own personal lack and obedience to, uh, to, to God. I don't know about you, but this kind of goes against the grain uh, of my 21st century American sensibilities. I mean, what business is it to you how I personally fail God? Well, according to the scriptures, we're one body. When the pinky toe of a marathon runner is severely infected, the mission and purpose of the entire body is severely affected. However, when the pinky toe is wholesome and healthy, the mission and purpose proceeds unhindered and it flourishes. And so it is, when we love God, the implications towards the body are felt in a tangibly life-giving way. What you do in the dark when you think no one is looking consequently affects the body. And so John presses on and tells us in verse, uh, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Now in our flesh, in those sinful desires that we all possess, we might have a gripe or two against that whole idea that His commandments will never be a burden. However, for John... Believers possess the key device given to them by God Himself that equips us to overcome every obstacle in the world. And that's our faith. Now, for many of us, 
we may have gone about in our Christian walk hearing that old adage that all you need is faith. However, I appreciate that John saw the need to clarify and qualify what this overcoming faith was exactly. The, the reason is because non-believers have faith. Mormons have faith. Muslims have faith. Hindus, Buddhists, atheists have faith. This really needs to push us to ask ourselves, when it comes to reflecting on the faith that overcomes, are we picturing faith as a kind of cultivation of optimism with a little dash of spirituality attached to it? Is a faith that overcomes merely a holy hoping for the best? Not for John. And looking at verse 5, Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I want to encourage you to recognize the scandalous audacity of that kind of a statement. John is really saying that the one who overcomes all obstacles and hardships that come from this world, the, the one who overcomes is the one whose faith is rooted in Jesus, the Son of God. Truly there must be power in Jesus Christ for his people, and such power must have implications in the lives of his people. And so this is why believing Jesus will always be inseparable to how a disciple loves and obeys God. And this takes us to the second point. Believing Jesus will always be anchored in what God the Father testifies concerning his Son. Now, a couple of months ago, there was a seven-hour-long debate between two scholars, the, uh, you know, as he identifies himself, the agnostic atheist Bart Ehrman and Mike Lacona, a fellow brother in Christ. Uh, there was a seven-hour-long debate on whether the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened. And in all fairness, it's a good question. How can you know something like the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened? In fact, if you pick on that question alone long enough, you'll begin to come across other difficult questions that have, in fact, led many in the church on the road to deconstructing their faith. If Jesus is who he affirms to be, whom the rest of scriptures asserts he is, what would it take for you to believe in those affirmations and assertions. Now, up to this point, John is completely showing us his hand. Believing Jesus equips us with the means to overcome. That Jesus is the only sufficient foundation to sustain our faith. Now, I have no reason to doubt that many of us here already know this. And yet, it is still curious to observe how John transitions from verse 5 to verse 6. He says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is the truth. As if to validate the one who needs no validation from man, John directs us to three witnesses who affirm the identity of Jesus Christ. Water, blood, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this mentioning of witness is important because according to the scriptures, a testimony is not valid unless it's backed up by two or three witnesses. And how much weight you put on those witness accounts also depends on who's giving the testimony. And so, John provides us 
three witnesses of which he notes in verse 7 and 8 are in agreement concerning who Jesus Christ is. Water, blood, and the Holy Spirit. Now, these three witnesses provide the answer to the question of what more a believer would need to believe that Jesus is who he asserts to be and affirms to be, God's Son and the Christ. Now, and it takes very little imagination to understand how or why the third person of the Godhead would count as a witness to the identity of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is God. Why wouldn't he affirm the identity of God the Son? But what about this inclusion of water and blood? What role does water and blood play in the identity of Jesus Christ? Given that John notes how Jesus is the one who came by water and blood, I find that there's really really uh, little reason to doubt that this points us to the baptism and crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the beginning and ending of Jesus' ministry on earth, with the Holy Spirit, in addition, bearing witness to Christ. The very Holy Spirit who initiated the conception of Jesus, as we see in Luke 1.35, who descended upon Jesus at his baptism, as we see in all four gospel accounts and remained with Jesus throughout his ministry until through the Holy Spirit Jesus was offered to the Father as our atoning sacrifice as we see in Hebrews 9.14 and then later through the Holy Spirit was resurrected on the third day according to Romans 8.11 with the water of Jesus' baptism marking the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and his blood shed on the cross marking the end of his earthly ministry The Holy Spirit bears witness to the full human experience of God, the Son, from his conception to his final breath on the cross to his first breath in the tomb. And as we look in verse 9, John paints a clear picture, content to say that the Father's testimony concerning his Son is sufficiently grounded in the water and the blood by which Jesus came and the Holy Spirit himself. And so I ask you, what more at this point do you really need to believe? We see that God has given us everything we need to believe. So is your faith lacking? Look then to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, And I have no doubts that there may be a necessity for seven-hour-long debates over these important matters. But understand that there are no apologetics, there are no arguments or debates that are sufficient to bring dead men to life. This is why believing Jesus will always be anchored in what God the Father testifies concerning His Son. Now, this leads us to our last point. Not believing in Jesus will always have eternally dire consequences. Now, if we can see the inseparable connection that our faith has with our actions, and the sufficient foundation given to us in Jesus, for by which our faith must be anchored to, It would therefore follow that the implications of these truths are absolutely severe if we were to reject everything about this. In fact, when we look at verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God has this witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness which God has borne about his Son. Think about the implications this has to those who are believers. The language John is using here is not to give the impression that we are mere partakers of God's testimony by mere association through faith, but that God's witness belongs to you 
You have it. It is yours. But then we have the matter of what's at stake should we decide that what God has provided as testimony concerning his son is not enough. We make God out to be a liar. Looking at the the, the conclusion again at verse 10, the one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he does not believe the witness which God has borne concerning his son. This has dire consequences. This has to do with those who are not believers, those who outright rebel against God, as well as those who say to him on that day, Lord, Lord. Looking at verse 11, And the witness is this, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. According to God the Father, as informed to us by John, eternal life is inseparably bound to Jesus Christ. His last words on the matter of belief for the believer are clear. Believe, and you will have life. Reject, and you will not. It's scary simple. Not believing in Jesus will always have dire consequences on an eternal scale. Now, I have a confession. It was tempting, as I was putting this sermon together, to just tweak that last point so that I wouldn't have to conclude on such an intimidating tone. Yet when we look at verse 12, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have that life. We see that John doesn't hold back the urgency. We've got to get this right. There is too much at stake. Do not miss the opportunity to test your hearts before the living and active Word of God. As I noted before, John had no doubts that he was writing to believers, just as I have no doubts that I am preaching to my brothers and sisters in Christ here. But you have to understand that belief is more than just head knowledge. Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, that in the day of judgment, there will be many who knew Jesus. And yet they will find themselves hearing from Christ, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We must understand that belief is by no means blind faith or a kind of spiritual hoping for the best. True belief, the kind of belief that gives the Christian that peaceful assertion, that peaceful assurance of eternal life, is the kind of belief that leads you into the submission of Christ's lordship and provides you with an iron grip on his saving grace. Is Jesus your Lord? Then do what he says. Is Jesus your Savior? Then build your life upon his precious words. This is why believing Jesus will always be inseparable to how a believer loves and obeys God. How believing Jesus will always be anchored in what God the Father has testified concerning His Son. And how not believing Jesus will always have eternally dire consequences. The call to action here is simple and straightforward. Believe. Believe in the witnesses God has provided so that your faith may be sustained. Believe so that you may be able to endure and persevere and overcome. Believe so that you may be equipped to faithfully obey God and love your fellow brother and sister in Christ. We are called to believe. And our belief 
in our belief, we're able to stand firmly in the precious and beautiful assurance of eternal life that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Believe in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, God the Son, so that you may have the Son and therefore have the life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I give thanks to you for this time that we have to be exposed to your word and this call to believe. The very first words of your ministry, O Lord Jesus, was to repent and believe. I ask, O Father, that you would please, as that desperate father had once cried out to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. Apart from you, there is no faith that overcomes. All of us know now the call to believe. And so we ask, O Father, that you would help us to believe in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, so that we may live and love you faithfully well. It is in your precious Son's name that we pray. Amen.